Listener Production. What we don't know is what new things will come. Using the flywheel on the top of the hand to cancel the tremor. The person puts the glove on and all of a sudden they've gone from a severe tremor to threading a needle, being able to drink a glass of water, whatever. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and the host of this podcast, The Good Oil. Now, hopefully you've been listening for a while, but if you're not familiar with the phrase, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff, which is exactly what we try to do with this podcast. We bring you conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. Now, today's guest is someone who really does know what's going on, but far more interestingly for me, who knows a little bit about what's going to be going on. He is, he's got one of those titles that always amazes me and fascinates me. He is a futurist. Of course, we are talking about Mark Pessy. He is uh, a very, very accomplished individual. I'll do the bio in a second, but first I'll say, Mark, welcome to The Good Oil. Thank you very much. Mate, your CV reads like the CV of a bloke who was there and doing it as it all happened. And, and I guess as I say this, I'll, I, will, I will run it out because our listeners may not, they probably do know who you are, may not know quite as much. You went to MIT. Uh, you then left MIT to work in dial-up networking. For those kids listening, uh, dial-up networking was a thing before the NBN and, and cell phones and everything else. Mate, you worked in VR, you worked with and for some of the biggest names. And some of these names, frankly, will be more familiar to me and to you than maybe some of our younger listeners. But you worked at Apple. Uh, you started a company that worked on 3D technology on the web, working with businesses, and get this, Microsoft, Netscape, Silicon Graphics, Sun Microsystems, which is the name I haven't heard in a while, and Sony and plenty of others besides. Mate, I'm just going to start by asking you not to look forward, but to look backwards. When you kind of think back over that career and being there at the birth of so many different technologies, part of so much of what we now take for granted, how do you reflect on all that time? Look, some of it's luck. Some of it's that I have an insatiable curiosity. So, I mean, the first thing that's in my career, and it's it's on one of my bios, but it's not really brought forward. There's this thing called the secure ID, key fob and card that people had for years and years. It was the first two-factor authentication device. And I created the first prototype at my boss's instruction. He came up with the idea and I was, I was his little hacker. He's like, here's what I needed to do. And so the very first two-factor authentication device was something that I whipped up basically in two days in 1984. And I I don't think I had any idea for years until someone that I'd been working with showed me this thing. I'm like, oh my God, what did he do? Well, he sold the company to RSA for gazillions of dollars and made a lot of money out of it. Now, I didn't have any of the IP in that. I was literally the junior engineer, but just some of that is luck. But then some of that is having friends who expose you to ideas and you're like, oh, my God, that idea is really important. One of the things that I've learned to trust over my years, and I think people in technology need to learn to trust it, is the spidey sense. Like you can encounter an idea and the hairs will start rising on your arm or on the back of your neck. And you're like, that is going to be an important thing. So the first time I heard about virtual reality, I felt that way. The first time I heard about hypertext, I I was absolutely convinced. First time I played with ChatGPT to bring it more to the present. Again, the same thing. So 
I have learned how to trust that sense and I have learned how to follow it. And there is so many of those different things. You're right. You've talked about your experience as an individual, as a technologist. And then there are the companies that are doing this and then the investors in those companies are employing those individuals and and there are so many layers of that. And yet, directionally, uh, it seems like so many of these things, maybe the laser disc was the only one that didn't quite take off if I, if I think back to the early days of, of things I kind of saw and looked around at. And you, you're absolutely right. There is this, the, the hype cycle we talk about of, of things kind of picking up and then everyone loses interest and it kind of goes away and it never really quite lands. And all of a sudden, and I say all of a sudden from a consumer perspective, someone's not living this every day, as you say with QR codes, oh, hang on, it's here. And like, well, it never really went away. It was just, it just took a while to kind of get that level of acceptance, maybe that use case that turned up all of a sudden in Australia in a way that it had been in China for, for many, many years. Mate, that takes me to, let, let's start looking forwards because this is, this is the fascination. I mean, looking back is, I think, instructive. I think it's illustrative. I think it's useful to remember some of those things that are the next big things that maybe didn't look like they were for a while. Can we start with ChatGPT, Matt? Can we start with AI? It is the big, the big. You know, the, the, I always say if is the is the biggest small world small word in the world. Maybe AI is the is the biggest small acronym in the world at the moment. I, I'm just I'm gonna I'm not even gonna ask you a proper question. I'm just gonna simply say, if I say AI, what do you want our listeners to know? So, it's a seventy year overnight success. <laughs> right. Let's start with that. So. Uh-huh. The term comes from the Dartmouth workshop that ran for four weeks over the summer in 1956. A bunch of blokes got together, including some very well-known blokes, and said, we're going to solve the problem of human intelligence and machines five years, 10 years at tops, right? Did not work out. But we've learned a lot along the way. And I think what we learned, one of the big takeaways isn't about the machines. It's about how poorly we understand what human intelligence is. All right. And that's that's actually really profound because in studying artificial intelligence has helped us to understand human intelligence better. All right. We had years and years of this. I am old enough to have lived through three of the AI winters in the 80s and then in the 2000s and then so on and so forth, right? So it's back now. It's not going away again. Everyone is sort of like, oh, this is fake or it's this or it's that. I'm like, "Mm, no, because you ask the folks in the field and what they say is, oh, this time it works, Mark. You know, all of that stuff that we thought we could do. And I know people who have been trying to do things for 30 years who suddenly can do them. And I mean, the thing that we want to talk about, the thing that I'm truly obsessing about in AI, it's this area called autonomous agents that we can now use tools like ChatGPT as the motor inside of a vehicle. All right. So think of it this way. It's the brain, but you can give that brain a task and that brain can now reason its way into breaking that task into steps and then reason its way into breaking those steps into actions and then start performing those actions. But, and this is the, this is the thing we couldn't do until last year. As it performs each of these actions, it can then check to see if it did what it was supposed to. Because computers would would be able to break the problems down, but they wouldn't be able to check when they'd run off the rails. And now, although it's imperfect, we can do that so that the computer can, quote unquote, reflect on what it's doing and correct it in real time while it's trying to do it. So we now have the capability for, say, a CFO to be able to spin up an agent and say, I need you to go find last year's projected budget and compare it to the actual 
right? And then the computer will go off and grind for a few hours, search the local network, maybe come back and bug the CFO for some documents that it needs, download it, digest those, and then give them a report a couple of hours later. Uh, these autonomous agents, the funny thing about them is they're not they're not super fast, right? I mean, they're faster maybe than having a person do it, but all of the AI that we're using now, the large language models, they're kind of, by the way we think of how fast computers work, they're kind of slow. And it's not that they're slow, it's that they're digesting huge amounts of data. So they look slow or look human speed. And we'll be able to build, as we get better at this, more and more different kinds of autonomous agents to automate all sorts of tasks that will help us do work better. And that is a phenomenon. I, I'm fascinated by the way you describe AI because I think for the non-technologist, there is a a very consumer-centric lens. I don't mean consumer as in individual versus business. I mean, you're, we're consuming the outputs. You are seeing very clearly the inputs and the processes. Even just the way you talked about that breakdown, I think, is really, really fascinating because you're thinking about it as, a, as an engineering problem, an engineering opportunity, which is wonderful. And that's the insight that I think many of us don't have from the outside looking in. There'll be some people listening who are saying, of course, got to know that. The rest of us thinking, well, that's kind of weird and interesting, and I'm glad someone's doing that because uh, it, it's a fascinating way to think about it. When you talk about those autonomous agents, mate, let, let me let me ask you to put the futurist hat on for a second, virtually or, or otherwise. Feel free to literally put a hat on, should you choose. Uh, the, uh, the idea of ChatGPT, as you say, and it is phenomenal to me how quickly we absorb things as normal. AI was not there. Also, now we use ChatGPT all the time. And it's like, it comes out, right? The, the touchscreen mobile phone, you know, within, within two generations, we couldn't imagine a world before it, even though it only been around for two, three years. So, so take me a couple of years into the future of, of large language models, AI, chat GPT, so many different kind of buzzwords here that some of our listeners will absolutely be all over. Some will just kind of, they'll all kind of meld into one. But talk to me about that. You talk about autonomous agents and that being the most, you know, interesting and maybe maybe powerful part of what we're seeing. Take me into 2029, just, just to pick a, a year, five years hence. What are we seeing from AI, mate? So let, let me start with the present. So I just spent a couple of days because it was just released playing with something called Copilot Pro, which is Microsoft's Copilot, which is its version of ChatGPT. But it's the version that's now integrated into Microsoft Office. So it's inside Word, it's inside PowerPoint, it's inside Excel, it's inside Outlook, all of those apps. And most everyone who touches a computer is using at least one of those apps these days. And so I'm like, okay, what are we starting with now? And right now, of course, they're good at generating some text or helping you edit or summarize something. So they can do things the way a human editor might, in some circumstances, do it better. Uh, so there's a mix here of doing things that we already do, but doing them faster or doing them with less people, right? And I think that's where we're starting right now. Then as we get out to 2029, what we see is this set of tasks that we can ask the AI to do gets more and more detailed. I need you to go find all of the financial data for this business division over the last 18 months and all of the financial data that's available on our competitors in similar business divisions for the last 18 months. Lay out the competitive timeline against this, against our marketing spend, and let me know where we need to be spending more money. All right. Which is and that is a completely reasonable business question to ask. Most businesses can't ask that question all of the time because they don't have enough staff to do it. 
So what we're going to see is by 2029, the staff will be dreaming up these questions that will be important to making the business run well and creating and managing the agents that will be answering their questions for them so that everyone in the business becomes a lot more of a manager, both a manager of people, but also a manager of these agents. It is phenomenal. If you think about it, though, as you say, it's a very reasonable question, a question anyone want the answer to. Is it is it fair to say that as you as you describe that, I'm hearing that, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm hearing that the, the, the major things we're doing now won't change, but our ability to augment those with the things we otherwise wouldn't have had the staff for. I think if something's worth having a staff member for because they can give us an ROI, we're already doing that, right? We're saying, okay, well, Jack's here to do it, Jane's here to do this job. They do this job because it's valuable. They're going to keep doing that job. I don't really have the time or the money or the ROI to have a staff member to do the secondary or tertiary things. But if I could get that and add it to what I'm already doing, then I become more effective, more profitable, more successful, uh, bigger, better market shares, all those things happen. Is that too linear a thought or, or, is it, or is it changing more fundamentally than that? I, well, I mean, I think you bring up something. It's very, one reason I give a linear example is because people can really think in these terms. What we don't know, and again, this is the known unknowns, what we don't know is what new things will come. I do think that autonomous agents are extremely powerful and using them in this linear, like here's a normal business process and we're going to do it. That's fine. We already know because people are hypothecating that it's probable that you'll be able to spin up an autonomous agent that will simply run its own business, that will be its own CEO, that will run its own Right. And and the amount of human care and feeding something like that needs is going to change and it's going to change based on both what it's doing and how it's doing it. Things that would touch the, the stock market, for example, will probably require a lot of care and feeding. If it's a fintech company, it clearly does because of regulation, whereas something that may be more back office, maybe less so. And this is where we can see an explosion in a new kind of business and a new kind of business model that looks really different, where it's not just getting that tertiary insight into the business, which is useful, but it's actually spinning up new businesses because the threshold for doing that has been lowered so substantially. And what we don't know is when you do that, what kinds of new businesses both become possible and what kinds of new businesses start to aggregate around certain kinds of ideas. That is, that is you've given me a billion questions to ask. So, uh, and, and I don't even know where to go with it. I'm also mindful there's other things other than AI maybe, or maybe there's not, which I want to ask you about. So, let, let me kind of, I, I, when you when you described, again, I'm a simple man, Mark, so help me out. But when you, when you describe those new businesses that could get spun up, we've all heard and seen the, um, the the artificial voice giving, doing a voiceover for a YouTube video, right? And and all of a sudden, so my, my first thought is describing that and you talk about new businesses that could be spun up. Entire YouTube channels that get created out of a combination of find the image, find the top popular topic, uh, narrate it, write it, publish it once a day for the next, that, that you could imagine it not being far away from that being done automatically. And we have to note that in Netflix's latest, I think what S1 filing, 
they indicated generative AI was a fundamental competitive threat to their business. This is the first time they put it on their S1 filing. And so even they can see it. I have friends, I, I was just in Los Angeles, spent a lot of time talking to friends who were trying to work at this intersection of generative AI and entertainment. We know that some of this was the core of the reason that the, both the actors and writers went on strike last year in Hollywood. But we also know that this is going to be a really interesting area. So the kinds of channels that you're talking about, which are generated, and already you can detect when the narration, the audio narration on a YouTube channel has been generated because it's phrasing falls into what we would call the uncanny valley. It just grates enough because it's not just human enough. So that that will get better and better and better, as, as well as, of course, the ability to deep fake will get better and better and better. But we are looking then at this ability to be able to generate new video based on text prompts, Google just released something called Lumiere. We're seeing virtual production like they're doing with The Mandalorian. All of these pieces are circling and will start to cohere. Now, I gave a series of talks last year which were aimed directly particularly at people who are working in special effects and computer graphics where I talked about something called the synthiverse. So the synthiverse is basically where you just give the computer an autonomous agent, a prompt, all right. One of the prompts that I described was, because this is a real world situation, create an emergency room staffed with patients and doctors and nurses and a queue of patients waiting to be triaged. Add family members. I'm a doctor. Now, the reason you create a simulation, because that's really what you're asking for, so it's not a TV show, you're creating a simulation, is because health workers working in emergency rooms are confronted by all sorts of very tense situations, particularly family members who are going bananas because a family member is, is very sick. And it turns out that giving them the opportunity to front up to these situations and to learn how to respond to de-escalate these situations gives them skills that they draw on when they're in the real world version of this. Now, Queensland spent a lot of money, because uh, I got to see the demo last year, creating a single one of these, which is being used in emergency rooms for Queensland nurses. Brilliant idea. But really, they should be able to create this almost on the fly, on demand for every doctor or every nurse in every situation in every specialty and have the systems generate this. I'm sure that by 2029, that ability will be maybe available as a service. Maybe that's the next place that Amazon streaming goes. <laughs> it's not a new, it's not a billion dollar TV series about elves, but it's going to be these incredibly useful synthiverse simulations that help people learn how to do things on the job. So I'm a business person, I'm an investor. What are the business implications? I, I, on one level, if everyone could do it, then there's no competitive advantage in doing it. Uh, the first person there has an advantage for a period of time. And that that's, could be massive, frankly, because by the time the others catch up, it could be game over. Uh, on the other hand, if you're using publicly available information, large language models, uh, AI, uh, autonomous agents, again, I'm, I'm, I'm messing all over these, these phrases, but help, help me understand the business implications of this. But here's the thing that people aren't really talking about is that most of the large orgs, particularly, I think, in America and Australia, are privately building their own large language models from their own data sets. We already know. Bloomberg has already done this, right? There's a Bloomberg GPT. There's a Chase GPT. So we know this. And, and we can presume that the big four banks are doing something quite similar. We know that the big four consultancies are because I believe there's already a KPMG GPT or whatever it is. 
So we know that these large organizations are leveraging their own data to build large models. And then the question is, what are the products and services that they can offer that provide value beyond what you get over a generalized model like a chat GPT? Now, part of this is going to be stressed because we're now starting to hit this area around people talking about copyright. So the New York Times is suing OpenAI. And really, the argument, the question here is whether OpenAI should have access to what is effectively real-time information about the world. Because, frankly, if the New York Times is going to sue OpenAI because of an article that's 10 or 20 years old, I don't really think they're going to get a good result from that. But if we're talking about something that integrates current events, then really probably the New York Times should be creating and probably is creating its own large language model, which can then be licensed into an open AI to integrate its results. Or you have an access to the New York Times open AI, uh, New York Times large language model, which has a lot of very specific news related data. So rather than thinking that there's just going to be a couple of companies that dominate this, and I don't think that's really how it's looking, even though we see Microsoft and Google really taking the lead here, an open AI behind that, an anthropic behind Google and behind Amazon. Even though we see that right now, the space for the number of custom models that we need for the number of jobs that we need to do is so big. But I don't feel as though that market dominance is going to really matter. It's going to be about how businesses can leverage. On almost every business at scale has what we now call data pools or data lakes or data oceans, depending on how much data, how they leverage that data into a meaningful model that they can then use to improve their business. I'm fascinated by this, Mark. There's, there's two ways of thinking about this sort of approach. One is that, as you say, the individual organization, take the Commonwealth Bank, has all of this information about its customers, spending habits, borrowing, credit worthiness, defaults, uh, yeah, all, all the stuff. And, and again, it's a very, very simple example because it's ones and zeros or, or numbers in general, right? So it's easy to do. On the other hand, in the US, there is a business, I think from memory, it's called Upstart, I would have, stand to be corrected, that's actually providing credit worthiness or credit checks, credit um, uh, recommendations for banks. And its its benefit is actually, I'm not using just one bank, I'm using all the banks. And so my data is richer and bigger and, and I have more examples so I can be more accurate. And we've got, on my, you know, on my simplest, simplistic reading, a very right-angled kind of question here of Commonwealth Bank, biggest bank in the country, most data. And yet, and yet, there may be more value for the banks as a group in pooling all that data so they could all make better decisions, all have better loan experiences, fewer losses, better margins, all that kind of stuff. And that, that I find that bit fascinating in terms of the winner. On one level, we say the companies have their own large language models doing their own work. On the other hand, it's like, well, that's true. But if you were able to, in some way, build in the either open information or pool proprietary information, you know, the, the, the use of it is fascinating. Are you trying to do it to get a leap over your competitor or simply keep your costs down? Do you want to be more efficient as an industry or are you trying to beat the other guy? There are some really fascinating discussions to be had about the role of this, who owns it, who uses it, and, and where the value is, is gained. There's also, I think, part of what we're kind of in the middle of is the differentiation between what we would call analytic AI, which is where you're doing credit history stuff and all that based on past data and past behavior, and what we would think of as generative AI where you're actually trying to generate new responses from the pool of data that you've collected. And the use cases for both of those are quite different. I mean, I think credit scoring, yes, you want to have a large possible data set there. 
I don't know if there's a lot of data to indicate how much larger a data set you need than ComBanks, which is going to cover probably 30% of all Australians, or the other banks, which will cover slightly smaller amounts, but still a significant subset of Australians for whether you get an improvement from going from 30% to 70% or whatever. I feel like that's an area that you would need hard data because you'd be waging war against the bank's in inherent desire to hold everything as close as possible. You know, now that we've found this new use for data in training large models, that data is assuming a value that is probably out of proportion to its actual utility. Like you see all of the sites like Reddit and Twitter and all these sites have closed down. You can't scrape their data. It's like, yeah, folks, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> We're going to stop paying for it. You might as well let us have it. Yeah, right. Right. There's a lot of data out there. I don't think that any of these sites by themselves will so starve a model of data that the data becomes pointless or useless or le less useful. But we don't really know any of these questions yet. We just know that all of a sudden people are sensitized to the value of their data and a model, and all of a sudden they've decided that they need to ring fence it. And some of that has to do with issues of copyright. Those are fair and those need to be negotiated. But some of it's just people being very greedy without really understanding the value of the, 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 the shared value of their data around a model. So it's and all of this is so new. Remember, we would not have had this discussion just a year ago. We wouldn't have had the language for this discussion a year ago. So these are all very new issues. I could spend another 45 hours talking about AI, but I also reckon there may well be other things happening in, in the technology space. And I use technology in the broadest possible sense. You know, sometimes I, I, I rail at the idea of calling things the tech sector. I mean, they use technology, but they use technology in the same way that companies in the 50s used photocopiers and companies in the 20s used wheels. I mean, you know, t technology is just the, the new thing, or the, frankly, it's the thing that helps us get work done. But in the, in the common parlance, it's, it's the new stuff. So maybe I'm just going to ask a different question, mate. With your again, with your futurist hat on, because this is what I find so fascinating about the work you do. What are you thinking about? What are you looking forward to? And going, oh man, in ten years time, in fifteen years time, in twenty years time, AI is a thing. But let me tell you about all the other stuff. So I just came back from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and that's it. Um, it's huge, right? But it's amazing, and for a futurist. It's like, it's basically, it's like, it's like the big thing full of bubbles at the Ikea store that you throw the kids to, right? And you, they just get lost for, and I got lost I like in, it. in Las Vegas for five days. Mm -hmm. Now the big show with all the big companies, like, okay, that was all right. But there's this place called Eureka Park, which happens over at a separate convention center, but it's massive. And it's where all of the startups are with all of their crazy little things. I saw something there that to me struck the nerve for where we're going in the future. It's called the gyro gear. So there's a doctor who's been working out of University College London since about 2015, and he's been treating a lot of Parkinson's patients. Parkinson's patients will develop a very severe nerve tremor, so much so that they can't lift a cup of water to even feed themselves, right? And so these people require full-time care. And he looked at this problem and realized that he might be able to build something and he prototyped something that a whole bunch of, a glove that fits over the hand, a whole bunch of sensors and because we make gyroscopes in such huge numbers, because there's a gyroscope in every smartphone in the world, billions of them a year, the gyroscopes are cheap and they're really good now. But the clever bit he created was something that looks like quite a thick watch disc, sort of almost a two centimeter thick watch disc that's got a counter rotating flywheel in it. 
So what the device is doing is it's measuring the tremor of the hand and using the flywheel on the top of the hand to cancel the tremor. Oh, wow. That's the person crazy. puts the glove on and all of a sudden they've gone from a severe tremor to threading a needle, being able to drink a glass of water, whatever. So it's noise cancellation, but for your nervous system, right? He won all the awards. Yes, he did. Yes, I'm looking at this and I'm like, give him all of the awards. It's available for sale now. He spent, again, seven years. This It's 5,000 US, but you've got to figure, for someone who required full-time care, that's going to pay for itself in two weeks, right? And it gives them their lives back. And so what we're starting to see now, and so that's that's one version of what I saw, which was a lot of exoskeleton stuff. Remember the powered exoskeleton from aliens? All right. Well, we have smaller versions of those now, which particularly are going to be marketed to older people so that when they go on a hike and their legs get a little tired, they turn it on. It almost looks like a fanny pack with a bunch of two garters attached to it. And it just gives you a little bit of literally a spring in your step to help you walk further and farther and faster. And so we're starting to see all of this stuff, and it's going under the name Age Tech now. And Age Tech is going to explode in this decade. And if we find companies that are leaders in that area, invest in them, back them, because none of us are getting any younger. <laughs> Self-interest is a powerful motivator. <laughs> and and we all need. I'm looking at all this, going, if I need that, I am so glad that. And I saw that. I said that to a lot of things, which I saw there. So there's a real upswell here taking everything that we learned about technology and now starting to apply it not just to a better tv but there's nothing wrong with that but to real human needs and solving them in really innovative ways that's super cool i'm i'm fascinated by medical technology in a diagnostic and treatment sense do you, do you spend much time looking at that and if you do uh the idea of the you know the one the one test i mean theranos famously you know an enormous fraud that being said I, I have mentioned before, I'm not entirely sure there aren't other businesses that were similar frauds before they finally made the breakthrough and just happened to get the breakthrough before everything fell apart, right? Which is not a defense, but I do wonder whether we look back and go, you know what, they were onto something, they were almost there and only took X, Y, and Z. What are you seeing in, in, in that spot, part of medical technology? So on the main floor, there was a whole section of medical tech, particularly involving urine, urine tests so that women could detect whether they were having a urinary tract infection immediately and be able to treat it or a toilet that will do your analysis after you've peed into it. And that was actually also quite quite a thing. And so you're seeing a range of devices there where a lot of the, and you can tell because we're so used to COVID self-test now, because we've all, all taken a few, everyone has taken a few, right? That the idea of bringing that pathology process home, and you saw a bunch of stuff that was related to that at CES. How do we package this? How do we make it possible for people to test whether they have X, Y, or Z? How can we test to see how someone's tracking in dementia? Can we give them a simple test of smells? Can we give them a simple test of memory? So there's all of this stuff that's in there. But the interesting thing is we have the med tech over here. And then in the middle, we have wellness tech. Or what one of my friends said was the worried wellness tech. Like my, my Apple smartwatch, which is constantly tracking like all of my heart rate and my exercise and all this. Mark, he said, Mark, you're the worried well. That's why you wear this. But there's a growing set of devices for that. And then as you move into the higher end, therefore, what they would, they're, they're pegging it as they're for elite sports people. Really, they're for middle-aged people who want to believe they're elite sports the, people. The, the weekend, weekend cyclists who need something else with their with their lycra, is that what you're telling me? 
Yeah. Okay. And but you could but the thing is for the first time at CES there was a complete continuum. So there wasn't an, a, a clear break off between the medical tech and the tech for just wellness and the tech for elite sport. You could see how they were becoming one thing just with different focuses. And that to me was a new thing which is telling us that this is now starting to mature. Again, mate, I've only got limited time with you. Is there anything else that stood out to you? What, what else are you watching, you know, fascinated by? What else is kind of on your, on your radar from CES or just from, from, from your general thoughts about where the, where the world is going? So the, the scariest thing, and this, this will open up into a larger talk, the scariest thing that I saw at CES was something called the Glückskind, all right, which is German for lucky child. It's an autonomous pram. Oh, now, right. Here's the thing. It's not supposed to be autonomous when the bub is in the pram, all right? But if if mom oh, is carrying bub, <laughs> it can follow you down the street. Oh, okay. We know that we have golf carts that are autonomous, and they will work on the golf course, and they'll follow you around the golf course. We had this for a few years now. Here's the thing. The footpath, particularly in a city, is a much more complex, rich environment than a golf course. And so an autonomous pram to negotiate a city street well has to be very smart. Now, bring this into a larger discussion. We all promised you autonomous vehicles. Now, Elon Musk ached up a demo and promised people autonomous vehicles, got the entire car industry to basically spend $100 billion across the entire industry. Autonomy at vehicle level, it's really easy to get a vehicle that can drive itself. It is really hard to get a vehicle that can drive itself around people. And in the world with weather and weird signs and bad road conditions and potholes and pets and whatever, right? That's the hard part. And the Glückskind inherits all of those hard parts. And we haven't solved any of those hard parts yet. There was, interestingly, in Las Vegas, where the Consumer Electronics Show is held, there were a lot of autonomous vehicles running around being tested by various people. So you could see that people are working on this and progress is being made, but it's slow. Will we have autonomous vehicles? Yes. Will we have them next year? Mostly no. By the end of the decade, maybe some. By the end of the decade after that, so say by 2040, almost definitely. What is some of the most overhyped technology? I don't mean companies, I don't mean products necessarily, but you know, part of futurism is, is looking at the things that are going to keep happening or, or going to start happening or going to happen at some point. The other part I assume from your side is looking at stuff going, oh man, I get it, but Probably not. What in your mind is, is in that overhyped category or maybe the not yet category or maybe the wishes and dreams category? So I'm going to give you a big one. And I actually have my own podcast on this coming out next week. So in for 10 years, I have been deeply involved in working with understanding also in the international drive to regulate cryptocurrencies and cryptocurrency exchange. I have given up because the field is... As much as there was promise, and there's a lot of things that are very interesting about them, and I actually still think that digital currencies, which will be done by the central banks, will eventually have some interesting things to offer us. Cryptocurrencies themselves have become such a ground for grifters. And that last episode is called So Long and Thanks for All the Grift. <laughs> well done. I have literally said, I'm, I'm not going to have anything more to do with this. I'm not going to hold any cryptocurrencies. I, 
I don't feel as though, and again, I worked at the G20 level with regulators, international regulators, for five years on this. And while they did make some progress, it was pretty clear that the people in the industry simply didn't want to be regulated, despite the fact that regulation was the only thing that was keeping them from the abyss that FTX and Binance fell into over the last two years, right? So even despite those disasters, they didn't want to. So I have to go, okay, it's a casino and you want to grift people who walk into the casino, I'm done here. Is that, that's a, that's a remarkable statement, mate, given, given the, the hype around this at the moment. Is that, is that, break it down a little bit for me, just one more level. Is that because of the people? Is it because cryptocurrencies are fundamentally not a, a, a technology, you know, central bank digital currencies aside, I suppose. If we say non-fiat, I hate the word fiat because it kind of throws you one of those weird camps, but is it, is it that it can't be done, it won't be done, the right, wrong people aren't doing it? Where, where are we at? Okay, I, I think what we need to do is we need to go to pre-1929 levels of what the banking system and the security system looked like. It's funny because I, I remember reading Joseph P. Kennedy Sr.'s biography and FDR put him in charge of the SEC as soon as the law was signed because Kennedy had done all of the bad things. <laughs> Every one of them. He knew what to look for. Punch it again, so Keeper, right. Basically put the fox in charge of the hen house because the fox had already made his money, wasn't going to, and needed to be able to regulate the market so that it would be stable. Cryptocurrencies have not had their moment like that. And I think until they do, as long as there's that much money sitting on the table, you always get grifters. And as much as you don't want to. And the problem is that financializing things by making them tokens, while it sounds like it's a good idea, inevitably, and this is the thing that after a decade, I had just have to go, it seems to be inevitable, inevitably brings out the grifters. And the problem is the grifters then so tilt the ecosystem that you actually can't get the good results that you thought you wanted. Amazing. Mate, I am looking forward to that episode. I'll give you a chance to plug it in a second. Before we do, uh, I'm, you've been very, very generous with your time, Mark. I'm going to throw our favorite four questions at you. Uh, our second one about trends is fascinating, given that's all we've talked about, but I am, I am, still, I am still curious. Let's start with, mate, your, your um, diet of content. Let's talk about what you're reading, watching, streaming, listening to. Uh, what, what's, on your, what's, on your, what's in your ears and what's in front of your eyes? So look, when I wake up in the morning, let me give you the six sites that I actually read. So Ars Technica, all right, Mac Rumors, Deadline, which is Variety, right? Uh, so I learn what's going on in Hollywood and what's going on in streaming. Hothardware.com, which is kind of like a fan site, but with interesting hardware news. The Verge, which again is another good news website. And Hacker News. Now, Hacker News is an old site, so it's not the kind of black hat hacker that we think of. These are actually the, the old school, like I'm one of the old school hackers, people who work with computers. And it's just a compendium news site that's voted up and down by people. And I read that every morning and there's always something amazing on that. So I think in terms of just my, my diet as a futurist, those are the core sites that I visit every day. Streaming, I am two episodes from the end of secession. And I know I'm a little in the curves on this, but I have really never enjoyed TV more than that. And I watch it with a friend and both of us are like, how are we going to find something that's as good as this? To <laughs> and we, we don't even know. I'm open to suggestions, but we don't even know how we're going to fill that gap. That's a big one. Uh, tell, have you watched Ted Lasso? Uh, no, I, I, I 
watch bits of it, and I know it's it's lovely. Um, I, I probably should actually watch more of it. It is lovely. It just hasn't. It didn't sort of immediately draw me in like I need to watch the next episode. Whereas Secession, for the first episode, I was like, it's all over. It's probably it's probably not. It's not Secession. I, I would if you've only made it a couple of episodes, give it a couple more. Uh, is my and if you don't like it, then by all means, go and go into something else. But uh, yeah, I, I, it was actually hard to get into for, for a movie. I had the same thing. I was I was late to Ted Lasso. I was like, oh, this doesn't seem like much chop, and it does grab you. So uh, worth it. Hey, um, this this is the next question we generally ask all of our guests. Uh, sounds like a funny one to ask you at the end of a conversation about trends. Are there any particular trends you are watching that can be about you know futurism or society in general? I mean, it's all the same thing, I suppose. We've talked about a lot of them already. Feel free to rehash or skip over it. But if I ask you, what trends are you watching? What comes to mind? Oh, no, I, I'm very much watching one trend. So 2024, of course, is a big election year, right? We're about to have a big election in India and then, of course, a big election in America and possibly a big election in the UK by the end of the year. And part of what I'm watching is the signal to noise level in the news and in fake news and in reporting and not just watching that signal to noise level because we know there's, there's a lot of noise in the system right now, but also how are people building their own filters or are they just diving in? How are people managing their own consumption? This is very much part of my own practice as a futurist, is taking a look at how people take in information, particularly in environments that are really noisy, to make decisions that are important to them. Mate, so either as a technologist or a futurist, what advice would you give someone who is starting off in either of those two directions? Look, be curious. All right. I mean, I've, I've been blessed with an unnatural level of skills, <laughs> but it has served me well. And I, I feel as though if you need to figure out what you are curious about and then just go run after it. And of course, there's that whole idea of following your bliss. And I feel like this is kind of one version of that. Now, you don't always you don't have to be the perfect technologist. You don't have to be the perfect futurist. What you have to be is curious and interested and asking questions. And I think if you do that, then you'll always end up in a good enough place now mate when i ask people this last question uh it tends to be from entrepreneurs and experts people who are building things and aiming to to make a better thing uh which is describing a lot of your career i'm also mindful that uh someone with a with a with a bent for futurism could could see some wonderful things and also potentially imagine some some pretty dark potential outcomes so i'm going to ask firstly if you are an optimist and if you are uh, what are you optimistic about so the answer is I, I am an optimist. Okay, I, good. That, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I think that futurists are constitutionally optimistic because if they're not, they go into cybersecurity. <laughs> I do not have the constitution to cybersecurity because my friends who are in cybersecurity enjoy the level of paranoia that comes along with being deeply involved in cybersecurity. All right. What I do think is that we are very smart and we have very good tools. My hope is that we remember that our tools are here to make us more human rather than more like our tools. I like that very, very much. Mark, you've been very generous with your time. How can our listeners get more from you, follow you, keep up to date with what you're doing and thinking and writing and saying? So markpesci.com, that's P-E-S-C-E.com. But if they want to listen to that episode, go to nextbillionseconds.com because it will be up there. Fantastic. Nextbillionseconds.com. Mark, you have been extraordinarily generous with your time. Mark Pesci, thank you for joining me on The Good Oil. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden, 
and imaged by Link Kelly.